to say that the podcast for your big questions get real answers my name is matt king i'm your host in chicago joining us here this week is glenn fitzgerald i'm back also with us is jed brewer still here with us all the way from Rutgers, tennessee lee younger no longer under protest that's right that's right protest also i was gone last time too <laughs> yeah there's we assume that you at home have a lineup card where you keep our, our various uh, dealings and maybe some stats of your own creation. It's like, is, are, is there like a say that fantasy league? <laughs> there oh. is now podcast fantasy league, but people misunderstand what that means. And the D and D podcast keep winning all the things. <laughs> yeah, dude. I, I was meeting up with a, a music friend earlier today. And so I had to, drive pretty far through Chicago land and, and went through some, some, you know, atypical areas. And, uh, there was an old fairly seedy looking hotel that was offering, you know, that they have whirlpools and as they termed it fantasy suites. Mm. And in my mind, those are hotel rooms that are devoted to Frodo and the Lord of the Rings. Like, yeah. I can't tell you how happy it would make me. Like you check in, you know, you've got <laughs> your, you know, you're, you're ready for action. You get in there. It's all dragons and orcs. That would be <laughs> incredible. Would you like to upgrade to the mithril bed coverings? <laughs> well, I also like the idea where it goes the other way, and it is exactly what you think it is, but there's a customer who comes in, and like they've hired a very august British gentleman to read uh, the Silmarillion to them in rich tones. <laughs> like, Pardon me, sir. Do these rooms have fine wing-backed chairs for my narrator? <laughs> well, I, I w- the, the the thing that would complete that picture is is if they kicked them out for being too perverted. <laughs> you you know this this weirdo in the Gandalf wig is creeping me out. You you you, just, you guys need to beat it, <laughs> sir. I don't know what a Balrog is. I don't need to know, but you need to go. That's right. <laughs> you are the wrong kind of kinky. <laughs> Well, there's your episode title right there, Matt. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it would not be good SEO, but it'd be interesting SEO. Oh, um, and oh it gosh. very unfortunately is going to transition into an emergency. Oh, oh no! <laughs> and I'm not any more comfortable with the fact that that phrase transitions into the emergency than you people are, but here we are. What are the Christians up to now, Matt? Well, or are they Christians? Yeah, when you say the Christians, there was a a giant profile that came out earlier this week on one Jerry Falwell Jr. Uh You may know Uh as the former president of Liberty University. If you'd like to know why he's the former president of Liberty University, uh, let the uh, segue we did into this segment uh, be a clue and, uh, you know, Google at your own risk because... We're not going to describe why he's the former president of Liberty University, but uh, what you learn as you dig through this thing is uh, he was an interesting choice to begin with because ah. I read a quote from him in this magazine article that he invited a magazine writer to come to his house in Virginia and write down the things he would say, <laughs> quote, because of my last name, people think I'm a religious person, but I'm not. Oh. Former president of Liberty University. Not that religious. Somehow this seems to me that explains the hiring of Hugh Freeze, Matt. Well, you know, Hugh Freeze is, uh, he's doing a lot of outreach of his own. 
That's why he got uh, asked to leave the University of Mississippi. And uh, yeah, more Googling for you. <laughs> but so that's, you know, that's the kind of the tenor of it. Oh, I, you know, I never thought I would. I'm not that religious. It's not been my whole thing. He just wanted to be a real estate guy. Um, but then there's some descriptions of his childhood with his father, the late uh, Jerry Falwell, uh, original recipe. <laughs> and Lord, there's some, you know, he drove, he, he like his Jerry Falwell's favorite thing was driving his car around the Liberty campus and like speeding at people in crosswalks. And then when he was too old to drive, they were like, well, we can't just tell him he can't drive. So they had what was described as a train style air horn fitted to it. So then he would just blow that at the kids. So there's a, there's some interesting insights into the kind of person who um, wow. became the uh, really set the blueprint for the American evangelical movement. But then there's this quote, which I've not shared with my co-hosts beforehand because I wanted them to experience it on air. Oh, uh-oh. So it's discussing Jerry Sr.'s uh, life and his marriage. And this is Jerry Falwell Jr. speaking. My dad wanted to travel the world as an escape, Jerry said. He recalled his mother's provincial worldview graded on his father. Quote, she wanted to live a small-town preacher's life. She didn't let him mess around, unquote. Jerry said divorce was out of the question. According to Jerry, his dad found ways to take the edge off at home. Even though Maisel, uh, his mother, never allowed alcohol in the house, quote, again, I want to specify that part, quote from Jerry Falwell Jr. about Jerry Falwell Sr., sometimes he would drink a whole bottle of NyQuil. He called it Baptist <laughs> wine. What? What? <laughs> oh, gosh. That's just, that's sad on so many levels. The man who started the moral majority. Oh, my goodness. Who had untold oh no. influence on American presidential elections. Yes. Uh, the, set the path that the Supreme Court is still digging through today. Yes, that's true. Apparently was so unhappy in his marriage, he would just go home and get all rip snored on NyQuil. Literally, if you've ever met a Christian who is a one-issue voter, it started with, with that Jerry guy. Yeah. Literally, no, I'm not. I'm not exaggerating. Literally started with that guy. I mean, look, I, I, I don't. I just, it's like you don't know how to get high either. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean. <laughs> You're drinking NyQuil, NyQuil. like, uh, like what we, we, you're, you're fooling us into thinking you have a cold or something. I mean, you know, oh, he's got a cold. It, it, it's <laughs> that is cold for 15 years. Just can't seem to shake it. I mean, if, if the story is, you know, he, he just had a, a love of, you know, fine wine and, you would have a glass of wine with dinner and relax. You know, okay, I don't really care, but okay. But you know, like drinking Nyquil is like just <laughs> God. It's it's just so sad. <laughs> well, let's let's take it back another generation because this is amazing. 
Uh, so we get to, uh, you know, we got Jerry Jr. We got uh, Jerry Sr. And here's, again, I read from the article. Jerry offered to help his father do research for his forthcoming autobiography. What he found was a revelation. Jerry wasn't the black sheep after all. His religious father was the aberration. The articles revealed the Falwells descended from a long line of rabble-rousers, drunks, and non-believers. His paternal great-grandfather, Hezekiah, was an avowed atheist and dairy farmer. I'm very confused about the pairing of those two things. <laughs> Apparently, dairy farmers are known for their piety. His paternal <laughs> grandfather, Kerry, was a notorious bootlegger, or as Jerry put it, quote, the ultimate entrepreneur. During Prohibition, <laughs> Kerry and Garland promoted cockfights and distributed illegal whiskey. The boys later wow. got rich, owning bus lines, gas stations, a nightclub, and a hotel where they kept a bear chained up for drunk tourists to wrestle. <laughs> Dang, <laughs> The dude. lineage from which the American evangelical movement springs. Oh, God. We kept a bear chained up for drunk tourists to wrestle. Wow. If you ever so, think uh, to yourself, it seems like a lot of these Christian celebrities just come from a long line of carnies. Apparently they do. Well, but according to what you're just saying there, there was whiskey in the environment. Like there was an awareness that other than NyQuil, there was something <laughs> that just might taste slightly better and do the same thing. If, if you're just right. determined <laughs> to get shellacked on something. You know, why the NyQuil, man? Because, Glenn, this episode of Say That is brought to you by NyQuil. The nighttime sniffling, sneezing, coughing, <laughs> achy, stuffy head fever so you can escape your marriage and overturn democracy <laughs> medicine. <laughs> NyQuil. <laughs> I mean. Oh, gosh. Do you find your nights haunted by the horrors you've wrought on your nation and the world, the division you've caused, the wounds you've reaped in the body of the faith you suppose to profess? Then I recommend a full bottle of NyQuil. <laughs> I mean, if, who are you fooling if you're going to the pharmacy and buying a six-pack of NyQuil? I mean, like they, they know something's case. up. If They've you're seen buying the NyQuil by the case. Yeah, you know, it's like, we, we know what's up here, brother. The dead soldiers are giving you away. Yeah. Well, I, I do like the idea that from now on, whenever we come across just some Christian misbehavior. We can go back to a bear for the Christian fight club. Yeah. Yes. Mm. And, a, yeah. and an empty bottle of NyQuil and just say, yeah, it makes sense. Well, here's, here's uh, absolutely right. I love the idea of, uh, can we spin that up into doing, being some kind of like, um, uh, Roman Christian, uh, theme park experience where you have to come fight the bear if you really believe. But here, the, this article is insane, but he, for this <laughs> one bit, I think the writer deserves, I don't know, give him a Grammy or whatever. Uh, I don't know what article writers get, but so there's a thing with the Baptist wine, which is again, what Jerry Falwell called a whole bottle of NyQuil when he drank it to forget the horrors of his marriage. And then there's a one paragraph about, uh, Liberty University's campus. And then there's this paragraph immediately following Jerry Falwell senior founded Liberty in 1971 with the goal of creating a Notre Dame for fundamentalists. We're turning out moral revolutionaries. He said, he told the New York times, I assume he said that his teeth entirely green and ready to fall out. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a fun, just doing some quick uh, calculations here. Um, there's a lot of other stuff in NyQuil, but just the alcohol content, 
if you drank an entire bottle of NyQuil, it actually is essentially a half bottle of wine. Wow. So the, okay. the Baptist wine thing, that's just wine, wine. Like there's other yeah. stuff in there too, but it's, that's just wine. <laughs> so Jerry Falwell drinking the same amount your mom does after a slightly hard day at work and deciding to create a Notre Dame, but that doesn't like books. Yes. <laughs> correct. <laughs> correct. Or, or people of other ethnicities. I already said a Notre Dame. <laughs> That's a joke from the eighties. Actually, Notre Dame is probably fairly progressive on that, but it still works. I still choose Miami side. You, you know, I am uh, uh, part of the affliction that I live with is that I work with pastors, some of whom back in the day actually attended Liberty University, Yeesh. and uh, it, it. I'm told anyway by them that. Um, when they would have their, uh, you know, when they were done with their schooling, they would have like an assembly and Jerry would come in and give them a speech of like inspiration, you know, for starting their career and like, this is what it is. And, um, uh, one of his main points that he made to inspire them and, you know, just kind of set them on their way was do not grow a beard because when people see someone with a beard, they think they have something to hide. Wow. And so uh, uh, I find that a little dismaying as a source of inspiration. Also, I've just been thinking ever since, does he picture like a really clean-shaven Jesus? (laughs) Is that how he thought that worked? And he'd get up every day and, and shave his face so he didn't look like he had something to hide. Uh, just very confusing. Gillette, the best that Christ can get. <laughs> I mean. Well, they just left that. It's in every gospel story, but they edited it out for time. Be like, he rose in the morning, and then he shaved because he didn't have anything to hide. And then he went out and took them fishing, that kind of thing. <laughs> Well, maybe he was only, maybe he only had the beard when he was walking on the water and that's why they didn't trust it. It's like, he it says he's Jesus, but he could be a ghost. Look at that <laughs> five o'clock shadow. Maybe the, maybe that's what, maybe that was the real problem the Pharisees had with him. <laughs> be like, only, only God can forgive sin. Also, this guy's got a beard. He looks shifty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, just. I do believe the the other uh, part of the Falwellian wisdom that has uh, trickled down and become public, and also picked up by later um, horrible, horrible presidents of the United States, was to wear a red tie because yep. it's uh, pr- projected power or something. I guess right. That's Wait, that's now correct. You think I've heard he'd that. want you to wear a green tie so it hides when you spill the Nyquil on yourself. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But. Maybe that's why, uh, you know, maybe that's why I don't make the big bucks. Maybe you got to drink just the right amount of NyQuil to unlock the ideas. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to find out that Falwell just couldn't grow a great beard. So he just came up with the theology later. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe that's why there was a rift between him and his son, because Jerry Falwell Jr., for all his many, many, almost entirely a personality made of foibles, not a bad beard. But does yeah. have something to hide, so I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. It's true in some right. cases. Yeah. 
And on that unfortunate and uncomfortable spiritual truth, we will declare emergency off. Wow. <laughs> I feel like in, in this emergency in particular, we really cut ourselves off when we could probably have gone the entire episode just yep. riffing on this. Oh, yeah. This, this definitely, definitely could have been a very special episode. But like the opposite of sitcom very special episodes where it's all nonsense. And, uh, you know, if you'd like more nonsense, just write in and let us know. We're happy to do an all-nonsense show. We stopped doing that for the benefit of you, the listener. Listen, if, if people want to get on a Patreon type of deal and directly pay us to be nonsensical, we're only hey, happy to oblige. Absolutely. You just uh, mail us enough bottles of NyQuil. <laughs> we'll really get the creative juices flowing. But for now, we're going to move on to your fine questions that came in to the, uh, ep- the addresses I will give you at the end. They also, you can scroll down to your episode description, click the links you find there. Our first question comes in and says, my life is terribly out of balance. I mean, they're so busy. I don't take care of myself and things in my life or else I'm wasting time in things I use for escapism. Constantly feel guilty for the things I do and don't do. I know I need to ask God how to prioritize, but I don't know where to start. And a, a very good question. As ever, we appreciate the honesty and the forthrightness in these questions. And Jed, where would we start off here? My friend, I am sorry that you're going through a hard time. Uh, we feel for you. We're praying for you. My guess is that you are not doing as badly as you think you are, but I want to start by granting your premise. And so I want us to suppose together that you're doing a terrible job of everything. Again, I don't think that's likely, but let's, let's start there and see what the implications might be. If you're doing a terrible job of everything, then there's actually a bit of good news, which is improvement is going to be pretty easy to come by. Because if you're doing a terrible job of everything, you could pick basically anything and tweak it a little bit, and now you're improving stuff. And it's worth noting that in life, improvement is all that can ever be asked of anyone. Like, there's no such thing Mm. as maxing something out and then holding it there forever. Like, I think a lot of Americans have that view that that's the goal in life is to get something to where it's perfect and then just keep it there. But that's not how life works and and not any sub area of life either. So improving things from where they were yesterday to where they will be tomorrow. Again, that's literally all that anyone can do. And so, again, if, if you if everything is completely terrible and you are doing a terrible job, then improvement is pretty easy to hook up. So my question is, why isn't improvement good enough for you? Why isn't being a person who, whether things are good, bad, or somewhere in between, I'm working on it and we're, we're, we're improving it. We're getting a little bit better. Why isn't that enough for you to feel good about it? Why isn't that enough for other people to feel good about it? Why isn't that enough for at the very least your conception of God to feel good about it? Because if we can't accept improvement, then we have to, we really only have two other options. One is super dark, which is we accept complete and abject failure. But the basis of your question is that you feel like you're there and you can't accept it. So that that one's right out. So if we're not accepting complete and total abject failure, and we also can't accept improvement, then the only other option is we have to fix it all in a big picture sense before we can accept our situation. We have to get everything just so before we can accept it. And I think it's really worth asking 
if that's kind of how you're feeling about stuff, no judgment, but why? Why do you, of all people, have to have everything just so before you can be cool with yourself? I doubt that you would apply that standard to others. I don't know that, but I, I doubt that you would look at your friends and say, Tim must have everything perfect before I can accept him. Susie must have everything lined out and squared away before I find her acceptable. I'd be surprised if you felt that way about the people in your life. But it feels like maybe there's an implication of that for you, that you do need to have everything squared away, put together just so before you can accept yourself or you think that God or other people can accept yourself. And again, there's no judgment, but I really think it's worth looking at why that is. Why would you hold yourself to a higher standard than other people? And again, why would you hold yourself to a standard that you know you can't meet? All that any of us can do is improve things. That's it. That's the only option available to any of us. And I I bet that you're actually doing more of that than you think you are. I don't know that, but I I strongly suspect it. But I really want to encourage you, if you're going to kind of solve this concern in your life, to start looking at that why question of the standards that you hold yourself to. Even if your worst fear was true that you have just you know crashed the plane into the mountain, I mean, you can start improving stuff right now today. Um, And I think a, a healthy standpoint would feel pretty accomplished that, you know, I'm doing better today than I was yesterday, at least in these, you know, little things. I want to encourage you to look at why that isn't something you can feel good about. Cause I think if we start to take that journey, we're going to be able to get some peace. I think that's a really great place to start this off. And Glenn, where do we take things from there? Well, yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. I, you know, I think, um, uh, uh, part of, uh, what I hear you, uh, doing here is sort of giving, getting to a place of being exhausted, overwhelmed, overloaded. And when you get to that kind of place, everything looks pretty dark and, and hopeless. Um, and yeah, then it makes sense that you would get into this escapism idea. And I, I, I'm kind of zeroing in on that because, uh, I think that's kind of a poorly understood element of life in general, especially of our, of our spiritual life. Uh, because if you can dig it, the busyness that you're talking about is escapism too. Uh, and, uh, so it, in fact, that's the main way that Christians don't deal with what's going on in their lives is they just become as busy as humanly possible. So they don't have to, you know, look at it and evaluate it, deal with it, what have you, um, that, you know, as, you know, I work with addicts as part of our day job and that's what they report to me is the last thing I want to do is to be alone with my thoughts and just contemplate where I'm at and how I got there. Uh, so, you know, that escapism is what comes into play, but, uh, I don't think that's something we want to vilify either. Uh, here's, here's my way of suggesting that you look at this. There's a right way and a wrong way to do this thing that you're calling escapism. The wrong way to do that is avoidance, just ignoring what's going on, you know, uh, distracting yourself from what's going on and just not facing life on life's terms. It's super important as a Christian um, as, as a person who wants to live a mentally healthy life to, to take on what's going on with you and, and dealing with that 
head on. But here's the interesting thing, is if you decide to do that, step one most likely will be to, um, yeah, maybe vent it, maybe yell about it, whatever, write in a journal, just get it out off your chest, organize those thoughts. But step one really in moving forward might be go and see a Spider-Man movie. Mm-hmm. Because you go and you see the movie and you're thinking about Spider-Man and you're not thinking about what's going on in your life. Now that feels like escapism, as you're saying. That looks like I'm avoiding things. But if, if you're engaged in the process and your intent is to engage with the process, what's going to happen is you go to the Spider-Man movie, you come in, you come out, and you say... All of a sudden, now that I'm a, a little more relaxed, now that I'm a little more detached from it, now that I'm not in the rut with it, I can see this differently. Mm. And that new, fresh perspective makes everything look different, and I've got insight off of this. Uh, and it's because I changed that channel in my head. It's because I broke this constant loop that I'm in. Yeah. So I think anything that does that for you, it might be exercise, it might be going for a, a long drive, it it might be uh, listening to music or playing music or whatever it is, but it, taking time to, to disconnect from that endless loop can allow you to come back to it much more uh, clearly with a fresh perspective on things. Final thought, and this is just something for you to think about, do you know for sure where rest and restoration come in this priority thing you were talking about? You want to know, you know, uh, I need to ask God how to prioritize. Where do you know where rest comes in that priority? Uh, if you don't know, or if you assume it's last, yeah. uh, you're going to have a lot of problems. Uh, my Bible says um, there was a day uh, every week that was called holy. And that holy day was the day in which you rested. So, you know, the idea of rest and, and holiness go together in my head. Uh, so recognizing that, it, that God wants to tell you something about the priority of resting, recharging, uh, getting away and doing something fun, disconnecting, and then coming back and reengaging in a fresh way is, is really the way forward on this. That's all really good stuff there. And Leah, I think I'd love you to pick us up there because uh, these guys both did a great job getting over the first half of this question about the busyness. But yeah. I think there's still more to unpack on that wasting time thing. The uh, Yeah. And what would we have to can, to develop that idea? Yeah, I mean, I really want to come in on the coattails of of the end of Glenn's response there and ask a question that I think for a lot of Christians would sound scandalous, which is, what if wasting time was holy? That's a really bizarre kind of statement to make, but what if what if that was actually a true thing? What if wasting time was holy? And really what I want to do is, is just defang the whole idea of wasting time being a bad thing or escapism being a bad thing. Um, so let's break this down a little bit. Like, if you enjoy a show or a movie or a video game or a sport um, that you can watch on a device, that's not a bad thing. That can be great. Um, one of the things that we need to recognize right now is no one, no one 
hyper uses every single moment of their waking life. No one does. And if somebody did do that, that would be really, really bad. It, like literally everybody needs rest. And the last thing that Glenn was mentioning in his response is a really, really important thing to, to recognize, which is that God like sanctified and prioritized and set aside one entire day out of seven for people to just chill, like to do nothing. Like their, their, whole, their whole job on that day was to rest and relax and literally to waste time. That was the whole idea of, of the Sabbath. The, um, we, we, typically, we, we call the Sabbath the day of rest. Well, in the Hebrew language, in the original language that that was written in, the, the word Shabbat means stop. That's literally what the word means. It actually doesn't mean rest. It means stop. Stop straining. Stop toiling. Stop controlling everything. Stop achieving. Stop. That's what the word means. It literally, the, the whole idea was an, an injunction encouraging people to waste time. Like, take a whole day and just blow it on whatever. W- whatever would give you, um, as Glenn was saying, that uh, I loved the word restoration in his response. Um, restoration is a great word there. Now, the, so the really cool implication on this whole deal is that God set aside an entire day for wasting time, which means, and, and we need to not set this aside, wasting time can be holy. That's, that's a super important thing. And it's one of those things that we feel bad about and we make excuses for. And like, we don't want to let anybody know that we took a nap or that we took some time off or that we played a video game or that we, whatever, whatever the thing is. Um, but actually in the mind of God and in the economy of God's order, in, in, in his design, there was one day out of seven that the whole thing was for not achieving, not producing, but for wasting time, but for chilling, relaxing. Um, the other thing that I would say is just to kind of add on to that, the idea of escapism as something that we vilify, that's not a healthy thing. Um, escaping from the grind into something where you're passively receiving something, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. So if you have an audio book that you love listening to or you have a show that you love watching, all those things are great. And here's the really, really cool benefit of the age that we live in. You can actually carry those things around with you on a device around your house. Now, when the, so the hosts on this podcast, when we were growing up, if you wanted to watch a TV show, you had to change the channel physically on the TV, <laughs> like with a dial. There was a there was a a, a a knob that you you actually turned to find the next channel, and if it was the busted downstairs TV, you may have needed a pair of needle nose pliers, the original yes. TV accessory. A- absolutely, we didn't get a remote control until we were well into the nineties. But like, um, but even then, there weren't a lot of channels or anything like that. But now we live in a day where like the things that you use for escapism you can carry around the house with you, which means that we can actually stack some of our priorities. And I, I, I want to take a minute to talk about the value of this. You can stack some of your priorities. So you might say, like, the, the way that you kind of point this out in the question is like, 
I'm bad at prioritizing because I go in, go into escapism, like a show or an audiobook or whatever, or some music or whatever, when I should be doing something else. I should be, uh, I don't know, la- doing laundry or doing a workout or doing a, a, a walk or a hike or something like that, something productive or something healthy. Here's the great thing. You live in this magical age in which you can enjoy your show or your audiobook or your podcast while you're also doing something productive. You can, you can fold laundry and watch your show. You can go for a walk and enjoy your audiobook. This is magic. It's amazing. Um, it's a really, really cool thing. And, there's, and, and here's the, the thing that I want to say to set you free on this. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. And nobody can point out anything that's wrong with it. If you can enjoy your favorite show while doing the dishes, then you've done something to improve the state of your house and you've done something productive in the normal, like the normalcy of your life. And you've also enjoyed some, like whatever your escape is the same with a a hike or a walk and your, you know, preferred audiobook or podcast or playlist. It's none of these things are bad. And we actually have the, the ability to stack some of these things. Again, to review all of this stuff, God has set aside rest and stopping and not producing as a holy thing. So we need to not make an excuse for it. We need to receive it as a holy gift from the Lord. And then we can get the freedom to stack some of our priorities and enjoy our escapes with some of our achievements. So laundry and a podcast, um, dishes and a TV show. All of these things are great, and we live in an age where all of that is possible together. We don't need to vilify all of it and call one thing bad and one thing good. We can actually stack and combine some of these things and knock them out at the same time, and that is a wonderful thing. All of this to say, set yourself free. Make sure that you have the balance in your life to enjoy, relax, and and receive the gifts of the Lord. All of these things are encouraged by him and his heart. Absolutely. Jed, one more thing on this? Yeah, you know, I loved, Lee was talking about the idea of, you know, nobody is 100% efficient all the time, which is super true. And I think one of the things that may be driving some of the way that you're thinking about yourself are, you know, the internet is basically a tool that exists for people to misrepresent themselves. Like, that's just, (laughs) that's what we're all doing. Right. And in certain quarters, and there's, there's different variations on this, but there are people where their big brag about themselves is, you know, I wake up at 4 a.m. every day, and I do yoga for 43.7 minutes, and then I meditate for 11.2 minutes, then I have a nice kale breakfast, then I walk for 7.3 minutes, and they basically walk you through how they live this life that is absolutely perfect in every way. It is, it is the pinnacle of, of all, both wellness and organization. And I think it's easy for anybody to read that and be like, man, I, by comparison, I am, um, like less than human, I guess. Like, I don't even know what's wrong with me. And it's easy to not go, is there a chance that's a lie? Is there a chance this thing that's being presented to me is just fundamentally false? Like maybe you kind of sort of did that one day, seven years ago and never have again, but you've been talking about it ever since. The other thing, because again, I want to be clear here. The internet, people are misrepresenting themselves all the time. The fact that someone tells you that they wake up at 4 a.m. and meditate and have kale and do yoga, that does not mean that they are doing that. Like, really, I want to strongly encourage you to develop healthy skepticism on that. The other thing that goes right with it is 
people who, by and large, it's not true in every case, but by and large, people who have a, a massive degree of efficiency in their lives probably also have some other advantages that are helping that, like a staff. Like CEOs of large companies probably do lead fairly efficient lives. They also literally have a staff to help them do that. They have a lot of resources and so many resources like huge lifestyle efficiency is a function of economic power. It is an outgrowth of having huge economic resources. And if you're in a place where you don't have those, you do not need to beat up on yourself by saying, why am I not living the kind of hyper efficient life that Jack Dorsey, formerly of Twitter claims that he lives and probably does not, but claims that he does. That's pressure that is almost certainly based on lies to begin with, and you definitely do not need to be putting it on yourself. Yeah, that's a lot of great stuff from all these guys. One of the, one of the great kind of Instagram uh, hustle meme things is the idea of we all have the same 24 hours. It's just what you do with it. And as he's got to point out, you actually don't. You don't have the same 24 hours because if you're the CEO of a company, uh, you can return a bunch of emails because you have a driver. Yep. You are sitting in the back of a Maybach returning emails or whatever and phone calls because you don't have to focus on the driving because there's a person whose full-time job <laughs> is to drive you from point A to point B. Right. So situations are a little different. And if you'd like to hear more about rest and the, the practice of rest, you can check out the water tower podcast where I recently did Ooh. a talk yes, on sir. such a thing. And we're going to move on to our next question here. It comes in and says, I'm terrified to talk to God. I used to tell him everything, and now I'm afraid he'll break my heart about everything I bring to him. I'm ruining everything I don't bring, but somehow I still can't do it. I try to get the emotions out of the way, but I'm still lost and spinning in circles. Please help. And another uh, excellent question, a question that I, I think is going to be one of those that the person asking it almost certainly feels like they're the only person who's ever dealt with this because it's so mm. terrible, and we're going to find out that that's super-duper not the case. And Glenn, where do we start off? Well, uh, we start off with sympathy. Uh, there is nothing wrong with you, and uh, we're not con- we're not going to answer this from the perspective of you are wrong and bad, and you need to stop it. Uh, we're going to answer this from the perspective of how do we move forward here? How do we get off of uh, the very negative place that you are now, uh, and get you uh, to a place of freedom and and I say freedom because the Bible says where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Mm. Uh, I I think here's where we want to start. God's word always gives comfort, Mm. 100%. That could be God's word in, as you read it in scripture, uh, that could be um, a word that a a pastor or a mentor, you know, Bible study leader, something might give you uh, that comfort. Uh, from God's word may come in prayer as you have a, a back and forth conversation with the Lord and you're listening uh, to him and he's speaking to you in, in your, to your heart and in, in your thought life and so forth. Um, I think it's important for you to recognize then if you are hearing things in your head or hearing uh, preachers or whoever say things and it's not giving comfort then you're not getting God's word just by definition. Uh, My Bible says that God describes himself as the God of all comfort. Mm. So, you know, um, 
comfort is the main thing he wants to give you right now. Um, I think we can get very worried and very concerned about God wanting to tell us to do something different or maybe end a relationship that we're trying to make work that isn't really working or to um, apologize for something or take responsibility for something or make something right, uh, who knows what. Uh, But I think it's important to recognize even if God is calling you to do something that might be a bit of a tough challenge like any of those things, there's still a comfort in knowing that it is the right thing. It is the good thing. It is the long-term healthy thing. Uh, so even, even when it's on some level tough to hear or even just surprising to hear, not quite what you thought uh, the Lord would want you to do, there's always a comfort in just that assurance of, well, at least I know it's, it's the right thing. And there's, it makes no sense to me and I don't want to do it, but it, 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 there's a greater wisdom there that I am, I'm trying to trust. Uh, it's odd to say this, but we need to say it out loud. All of us struggle with trusting a perfect God. It's just really hard to trust him. Uh, and it's hard for everybody to trust him, not just you. Uh, the reality is, uh, you know, we were we were talking before we hit record about modern praise and worship music, and you might guess that we, you know, uh, curled our lip on a lot of it. But a lot of that praise and worship music is, you're great, God, you're so, so great, you're everything about you is great, you're wonderful, you're wonderful, you're wonderful. Uh, but that obscures a deeper reality, and here's a deeper reality. God almost always fails to meet some element of my expectations. Hmm. Now, uh, you might say, well, uh, is there a chance that your expectations really suck and aren't smart or healthy or wise? And I would say, you know, screw you, uh, (laughs) number one. And number two, of course that's true. Of course my expectations are messed up. You wouldn't wouldn't even believe the expectations I have on myself. Those are really crazy. The expectations I have on God are just, you know, way, way off. Uh, He doesn't dance to my tune. He doesn't uh, come when I call him and do whatever I want him to do. In that sense, he lets me down a lot, and therefore it's hard to trust him. Uh, But the reality is uh, that trust needs to be in the fact that he knows better than me and that something is happening that I don't understand when things aren't going the way I want them to go. Uh, It's important, uh, you you know, you're talking about getting the emotions out of the way, and I think you're, uh, it's right for you to look at that. That's where I want to wrap this up. You're uh, venting off emotions, um, if that's yelling it, uh, if it's screaming in your closet, if it's punching a pillow, if it's writing in a journal, whatever it is, it needs to come out. You have to pop the zit, man, in order to get, uh, to the real stuff and the underlying issues. But I want to leave you with this thought. God's word always, always, always gives you comfort, and we want to be a comfort to you in that as well. It's a great place to start things off. And leave. where do we go from here? I, I love that response, and, and I, I, I want to come in uh, on a note where, where Glenn began, which is to say you are definitely not alone on this. Uh, this is something that I think that anyone that's honest has experienced for sure. 
Um, I, I want to encourage you to try a thought experiment, and I, I just want to ask you to go with me on this. Um, I, I want you to take a moment and get in your mind your favorite person in the world, whoever that individual person is, um, the person that you'd rather be with more than anyone else, the person that gives you the most joy, that you have the, the most downhill, easiest connection with, just your f- absolute favorite person. Just get that person in your mind. Now, um, once you have them in your mind, imagine that you have incredibly good news for them. Like, you have amazing news for that person. Like, no matter what they're going through, no matter what they feel, experience, have done, or will do, you have great news for them. Like, the news that you have for them is so good, it cannot be undone. It cannot be ungooded. That's how good the news is. And the question is at that point, what is the thing you want more than anything? You want that person to come to you and hang out with you. You want to talk to that person. You want to meet up. Now, here's the deal. If you could kind of get that scenario in your mind where you imagine your very, very favorite person and then you put yourself into the position mentally where you have incredibly great news for them that cannot be undone by anything they do or anything that happens to them and how much you would want to share that with them. The thing that I want to say to you is that's the actual position God is in with you right now. The position God is in with you is you're his favorite. And he has unbelievably good news for you. Like whatever you think God thinks about you, it's better. Whatever you think God would want to say to you, he wants to say better things to you. However, however you think you stand with God, your position with him is better than that. And his news for you is things like you are never alone in anything that you go through. You are destined for eternal paradise. You are not in trouble with him. Everything has been paid for and taken care of. He keeps no record of wrongs. You're, he has boundless patience for you and a love for you that you cannot fathom or imagine. And when you get your head around that idea of like, I'm actually God's favorite and I'm actually not in trouble with him and I'm actually destined for eternal paradise with him. And I'm never alone in anything that I go through, but I always have this unbelievable help. And that's the news that he constantly wants to share with me. The more that I understand that, then the more I want to share with him, the more I want to open my heart to him. And that's where I want you to get is to, to imagine a scenario in which it's actually true that you're his favorite. And he has news for you that's better than you can imagine. When you can get your mind around that, I think it can give you the confidence to go ahead and share your heart with him and to realize I'm not actually in a scenario where I'm going to be in trouble or I'm going to be a disappointment or I'm going to get yelled at or I'm going to get talked down or any of those things. The more you can understand I'm his favorite and I'm not in trouble, and he has incredibly good news for me, then that will give you the freedom to open your heart. A great place to take things. And Jed, where do we close this out? Well, you've heard some great stuff. I want to concur. God is not mad at you. He's not. 
He's not looking down on you. He is not disappointed in you. But here is my question for you to ponder and consider is, are there other people that are mad at you? Are there other people that are looking down on you? And are there other people that are disappointed in you? Because at least in my experience, but I think this is true for others as well, it's really hard to live a life where you know other people are pissed at you and upset with you and disappointed in you and have that not get in your head. Like, that's really, really super hard. And I think, again, this is true in my experience and and perhaps for you, I think that if you get a sense that you're letting people down or that they feel let down by you, those are not exactly the same thing, but for the moment, just go with me. If you get it in your head that you're letting people down, it's really easy to make that kind of a universal idea. If I'm, if I'm letting my parents down, I'm probably letting everyone down. And if I'm letting everyone down, well, surely I'm, I'm letting God down. And so I think that it can be a pretty slippery slope to go from a place of, you know, my, I don't know, my parents want me to have better grades than I have. So I feel like I'm kind of letting them down. And if we don't examine it carefully and kind of watch our thoughts carefully to wind up with a thing where we are now convinced that we are letting God down, um, without really figuring out how we got from one to the other. At the very least, I think it's worth looking at areas in your life where you feel that sense of judgment from other people, where you feel that sense of uh, condemnation from other people, and beginning to ask if those things have a point. You know, we, we used the yeah. example of, you know, you, you, your parents feel let down because you're not getting the kind of grades they want you to get. Do they have a right to expect the kind of grades that you get? Like, is that actually, a, or, sure, they have a preference, but it's actually a reasonable thing. If they are not paying for your schooling, for example, do they actually have a say in it? Like, I think one of the, the weird things as you, as you grow and mature in life is recognizing that there's a lot of people who feel free to have strong opinions about your life who actually are not, like, don't have a right to have strong opinions about your life, but they're, they kind of are, are eager to have them anyway. And so I think here's, here's the funny thing that, that you may ultimately need to land on, and it's, it'll sound a little funky, and it'll sound like something where you go in a weird direction with it, which is true, so you, you kind of have to be careful. But, like, I think if you're going to live a life that you feel good about, and if you're going to do that as a person of faith, then the following two things are true. You need to be cool with it, and God needs to be cool with it. That's it. Nobody else has to have a vote or get a say or have a perspective that is important. If you're going to be a person of faith who also has a life partner, then you need to be cool with it, and God needs to be cool with it, and your partner needs to be cool with it. But again, the circle of people where their opinion of how it's going matters is really, really small. Yeah. And part of the reason why I think you're going to need to kind of land on that is if you're not careful who you include in that, I think you're going to find people very freely and aggressively having opinions that are not kind to you, are not in your best interests, and may not really be based on anything. Like, I could be wrong about the following thing. It's happened to me many times in my life, but supposing that there are people that are disappointed in you right now, I have a suspicion that if you dug into it, what you would find is that the vast majority of stuff that they're disappointed about, they don't really have a point. Yeah. Um, 
they, there might be like a little detail here or there, but like 90 to 95% of it is just total nonsense. And some of them might be jealous, Jed. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And to kind of put one more thing on it, it's easy for us to adopt the disappointment of others and make it our own disappointment, right? My parents wanted me to get, you know, better grades. And now I feel like I want me to get better grades. I think it's really worth looking at if you are the person who's disappointed in you, if you are the person who's mad at you, if you are the person who's judging you, looking at, is that really actually how I feel? Or am I kind of taking ownership of other people's stuff? Um, if you've got something where you are legit disappointed in yourself, again, that's not the same as God being disappointed in you, but it is worth looking at how do you live a life that you feel better about? That, that's worth doing. But that's very different from adopting someone else's hangups and then feeling like you have to answer it. The main thing is God's not mad at you, and we can figure out what's up with maybe the people who are, even if it's including you. The more we do that, the more peace we're going to have, and that's the thing that all of us want for you is peace. Absolutely right. And we're going to move on to our final question here. It comes in and says, I get caught up thinking about negative things in my life from the past to the present. How do I get some peace in my mind? And there's that idea of peace again, always something worth talking about. And Lee, where do we start off here? This is a really, really cool question. It's really sharp and it's really, um, I think it's an, it's a normal experience for a lot of folks. Um, just not being able to walk away from things that have happened in the past and not being able to feel, feel peace about it. There's a, I think for this particular situation, a really helpful and cool verse with a really important phrase in it from um, the book of first Peter in the new Testament in chapter one, it talks about preparing your minds for action. It's a really cool phrase. It's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a military phrase. Um, based on the kind of outfits that folks wore who were soldiers back in those days. Um, they, they actually wore kind of these, they, they basically wore like skirts. And when they would go into like a marching type situation, they would have to gather up the loose cloth of the skirt and like tuck it into the belt so that they weren't hindered if they had to run into a battle. And, he, and what Peter is saying is, you need to do this same kind of activity for your thought life. You have to like, you have to get your, your mind ready to sprint. Um, in, in other words, I don't know every situation I'm going to go into, but I want to make some plans. I, I may not know what I'm going to face, but I know that whatever I face, I'm going to need to think in certain ways. So, in your particular situation, you're talking about things about your past. So I'm going to go into a situation this week. I don't want my past to get me bogged down. With that in mind, I want to do two specific things. And this is specifically making plans like a soldier, getting ready to sprint into a new week. I don't know what I'm going to face, but I, but I want to prepare myself for a couple things as, as it relates to things in my past. One. Whatever I've been through in my life, I want to make sure that I learn whatever I needed to learn from it. So certain things happen to you, and I need to be open to the idea that there are things I need to learn. That's all fine. Um, and, and that opens me up to some humility of like, I didn't handle every situation perfectly, and that's, that's okay. I, I, wasn't, 
I wasn't designed to, and I wasn't expected to handle everything perfectly. So with that in mind, what do I need to learn from what I went through? Okay, I'm going to open myself up to that. After that, if I've learned what I think I can learn, if I learned something from what I've gone through, now I need to leave it and I need to be ready to move on. What typically happens for folks is, and I don't think I'm the only person that's gone through this. I know I'm not because I've talked to plenty of people who have gone through very similar things. I know I've experienced this before and I know other people have as well is we tend to have situations in our past that we constantly litigate. And what I mean by that is we constantly go back over it again and again to say, did I handle that the right way? Um, what if I had done it a little bit differently? What if I had said a little bit different line in response? It's the classic, uh, the Seinfeld episode about the jerk store where George is like, oh, I should have, I should have made this joke about the jerk, the jerk store called and they ran out of you. Yeah. And he can't let go of it because he's like, that's the way I should have responded. We all do some version of this kind of thing. And what, when in first Peter chapter one, when he says, uh, you know, prepare your minds for action. What he's saying is, if you don't take some specific intentional steps about your thinking, then it's possible for you to keep litigating your past over and over and over again and never get past the idea of, I should have said the jerk store line. I should have handled it this way. I should have responded to this person in that way. What we need to do is to say, I don't know what I'm going to face this week, but I know that there's probably something I need to learn from what I've been through. Once I learn it, I need to leave it. Learn it, leave it, and then press on. This is the kind of discipline that will allow you to face new situations without constantly beating yourself up about the past. One thing I want to say about this kind of activity is it's not something that you can become an expert in overnight. It's something to aim at. So this week, as you go into this week, think back over the things that you're constantly beating yourself up on from your past and ask yourself the first question, which is, is there something that I need to specifically learn from what I experienced? If the Lord is telling me something, if there's something just obvious, just kind of a low-hanging fruit of something I need to learn from that experience, I'm going to go ahead and either write that down or think about that or have a conversation with either a counselor or a pastor or a, or a trusted friend about that thing. Learn what I can from it, and then I'm going to try to leave it in the past. I'm going to learn from it, and then I'm going to leave it, and I'm going to try to move forward. That doesn't mean I'm going to become a, like a master's degree expert in that this week. It just means I'm going to start, try, start trying to prepare my mind for action. All that means is intentionally taking control of how I deal with the past. I don't want my past to constantly beat me up. I don't want to be a constant victim of, I didn't handle this well, therefore I handle everything terribly, therefore I'm a bad person. No, with humility, there's something I need to learn and then I'm going to leave it. Let's start thinking about the past in those ways this week. Start trying to, to, to work your way through that process and see if we can get a handle on preparing your minds for action this week. Yes, all excellent stuff. The French have a phrase, l'esprit d'escalier, which is French for jerk store. Very, <laughs> very, 
similar concept. And Jed, where do we pick it up there? Well, I have an open-ended question for you, and and it really is meant as a thought experiment, which is why not think about the positive things? Like you you have the ability to do that. Like right now, if I said think about ice cream, you have the ability to think about ice cream. So why are we thinking about cancer and not about ice cream? No judgment, but I, but I do actually want you to think about that. Why, why think about one and not about the other? And as a follow-up question, is that because the negative thoughts feel more real to you? Do they feel more important to you? Do they feel more consequential to you? To go along with that, do you feel like the negative experiences in your life, the ones that are embarrassing, the ones that are disappointing, the ones that are humiliating, do you feel like those experiences are telling the truth about who you are? While the happy experiences, the positive experiences are just accidents, just happy, fortunate accidents. Because the interesting thing about all that, and I don't know what your answer should be to any of those questions, but I I do want to encourage you to think about them. To whatever extent you think the negative stuff is more real, to whatever extent you think the negative stuff is more consequential or the positive stuff is just, that's not, that's, that's nothing. That is an interpretation that you are placing on top of the data that's coming into your life. And the thing about interpretations is we do actually have a choice in how we interpret things. We, we do have a choice in how we process information at a certain point. If we get in a habit, we, we can do it so quickly that we kind of lose that element of choice, that we're not aware that it's going on. But interpretations are, are a choice. And so here's... Here's kind of one thing to think about. You're probably familiar with the idea of catastrophizing. You know, something starts to go wrong, and so you, you kind of, you know, your, your brain races to the, the worst-case possible scenarios of, of what it could all be. You know, the, the boss says, I'd like to talk with you on Friday afternoon before you leave for the day. And so you start thinking through, well, what does it mean? And probably I'm going to be disciplined. Maybe I'm going to be fired. Maybe I'm going to be fired and tell me I'll never work in this town again. Here's, here's interesting. The following is meant as an actual experiment for you to truly do is the next time that you find yourself starting to catastrophize, challenge yourself not, not so much to, to not catastrophize, but to give some equal screen time, some equal air time in your brain to how good could this be? What if the boss says, you know what, you've just been doing a heck of a job, and before you took off for the weekend, I just wanted you to know that you're really, we're glad you're here and you're doing great, and it's just we, we, we couldn't be happier. And there's two reasons why that's important. The first is, like, you deserve to dwell on positive possibilities. And I don't mean that in a semi-supernatural Oprah the Secret kind of way. I just mean, like, you, you do deserve to spend some time thinking about um, good things, potentially good things. But the other aspect of it is we will talk ourselves into, in the spirit of, of the negative things more, feel more real, we will talk ourselves into the idea of, like, well, the negative stuff could totally happen, the positive stuff probably not. That's not true. The negative potential every time you get in a car is super bad. Like, every time you get in a car, there could be an absolute life-ending catastrophe. But generally, you don't really think about that. You don't, you don't really worry about that. 
By contrast, almost every good thing in your life for most of us was just someone deciding to be cool towards you. Like, you know, someone's like, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be nice to this person. And then a good thing happened in your life. So we have these things that could potentially happen that are super bad that we actually don't give a lot of thought to. And we have things that have already happened that are good where more good things like that could happen in our future too. And so figuring out, am I in, am I engaging in the process where I am giving some equal airtime in my brain to the good possibilities, just like the bad possibilities? I want to encourage you to, to think about that. But again, I also want to encourage you to look at, are we choosing a negative interpretive lens? Are we choosing to believe that negative things are more real or more true or more important or more consequential? Because I don't think that that's a fair way to interpret data. I don't think that that's an accurate or, or um, again, fair way to, to look at your life. And if it's making you unhappy, then definitely we want to consider other options one more quick point. This is a great thing to talk with a therapist about. This is a super, super good thing to talk with a therapist about. If you're not sure where to begin for finding one, if you're not sure if you can afford one, reach out to us. We'd love to help you figure that out. There's always good options available. Uh, Matt, what's the best email on that? Say that podcast at gmail.com. There you go. We love you. We got your back. Um, you can do this. Absolutely right. All great stuff. And Glenn, where do we close this out? Well, I think I want to close this out by asking a question. And the question is, are your best days ahead of you? Uh, you've had some rough stuff in your past. Uh, you may have struggles with that in your present. Uh, but assuming that you engage with that, assuming that you find a way to overcome that and, and deal with that, uh, Will not your life be better? Are, are there blessings waiting for you in the future? Uh, if you have this strength, you might, you know, the strength that you gain from overcoming your past, that might make you the ideal candidate for being able to receive a blessing and to be able to handle it properly. So in my mind, um, it makes sense that your best days are ahead of you. Uh, you, you, you've learned a lot of lessons through making mistakes. That's learning it the hard way for sure, but that's the way most of us do it. So well, let's give you a big fat break on that. Um, I think your best days are ahead of you. Uh, given that, why on earth are you focusing on the wreckage in the past? If if everything ahead of you looks so much better, then why aren't we running headlong into the so much better part and moving forward? And this is what the Bible says. You know, we forget the things that are behind and we strain forward for the things that are ahead. And we're, we're taking hold of these blessings and the, we're taking hold of the reason that God took hold of us. Uh, so I think it's really important to recognize that uh, if the, your best days are ahead of you, then keep going ahead. Uh, but I think there's another dynamic here I want to talk about, and this is a, a tendency to make a narrative out of your past. Uh, I think we all have a way of doing that. We, we try and take the events of our past, the events of our upbringing, and knit them together in a story. Uh, we, we even use that phrase, man, that's the story of my life. You know, it's this mm -hmm. idea of, um, 
rather than see all these things as disconnected individual sucky things that we did or that other people did to us or both, we try to put it into some kind of a story so we can make sense of it. And sometimes so that we can see ourselves in a certain sort of way. Uh, And it's really important for you to understand this. Most of the grief that I see that people are struggling with uh, comes from assembling the wrong narrative out of the past events in their lives. Uh, there's many times people will talk about their upbringing, their life, their things that they did wrong. And I can look at that and say, well, okay, so you see yourself as an overcomer then. You've, you've overcome a lot of things. You, you should, that should be the story that you're telling yourself. This is a story of an overcomer. And they'll look at me kind of shocked to say, no, uh, to me, it's a story of a person making a bunch of dumb mistakes and uh, breaking every promise they ever made to themselves. So you can look at the same set of events and tell two different stories. Well, the question is, uh, you know, first of all, do you need the story? Second of all, if you're, if you're going to think of your life in sort of this narrative form, is it a generous story? Is it... Mm. Uh, does it make, does it really fit the facts that uh, if someone told you this, is this the way the narrative that you would put together to explain it to yourself? I really want you to look at the story that you tell yourself of your life, uh, about your life and the way you look at these events and ask yourself if you might be able to look at that through a very different lens that might make a whole lot more sense. Mm. All great stuff from all these guys. If you have a question for us, say that podcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumblr.com slash ask. If you want to keep that entirely anonymous, we're going to take out the song this week. This is from the ever mysterious and ever funky pool house guru. This take <laughs> on Psalm 3418. Take out that. Thanks for listening. Nice. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. The say that podcast reminding you that vaccines are meant for pandemics. NyQuil is meant for colds. And if someone asks you to run an evangelical university, it's okay to say, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh. The Lord is close.